One of the biggest fears in IVF is failure. But one of the scariest things in IVF is repeated implantation failure. Today, we take a look into this. I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. A few weeks ago, we talked about treatment failures. We talked about why IUIs don't work. We talked about why IVF doesn't work. We broke down IVF into no implantation, low HCG levels, normal implantation dropping, and normal implantation and then having a miscarriage. I was asked this week to talk about repeated implantation failures to delve further into the treatment failures and what it means to have repetitive implantation failures. Repeated implantation failure, also known as RIF, is when there is no implantation after three transfers of three high-quality embryos. Additionally defined, after using 10 embryos in multiple transfers. Now, I think the important thing here is to understand what we're talking about. A lot of people will call implantation failure when they have a low level HCG. Now, although that is a failure in getting pregnant and IVF failing, that's not technically an implantation failure where you have a HCG of zero. And I look at those as two different things. Although I know there is no trophy given to a patient who gets a positive HCG that is a chemical pregnancy, the silver lining is you did have implantation. And to me, that is a positive outcome because at least then we know things are implanting. The real fear comes when the HCG is just zero. It is so difficult to understand that I've even had patients ask me if we put back dead embryos. I've had patients even say, did you even put embryos back? Clearly, I know they don't believe that, but they don't even understand how could you get a zero? How is it possible that you can put a living embryo into a uterus and not even have a slight HCG. Even worse, genetically normal embryos and not have a slight HCG. We know that even with normal embryos and a good quality embryo, approximately 30 to 40% of the time, it will not work per embryo. And that 60 to 70% of the time, it will implant. The question is, when it doesn't work for you, is that because it was just chance or was there something wrong with you? Now, if it's just zero, I talk about the patients that this could be one of those situations where the embryo didn't keep growing. I remind people when when we take embryos out of the culture, the cells are dividing, the cells look good. 
but there's nothing to tell us they're really alive. I mean, truly, they're not dead because we would see the cells dying. But it's not like you and me that we can breathe, whereas my kids can be really loud. I know they're alive. My headache tells me they are. But embryos are different. They're just cells. And there's no way for us to know if those cells are still going to keep growing or are they never going to grow again. Just like we see embryos never go from day three to day five, there are some embryos on day five may never make it to day six. So that's one explanation of why embryos do not implant. But that would only explain one time. What about the second time? Well, if you think about it, if there's 30% of people left who didn't get pregnant the first time, then 60 to 70% of them will get pregnant. That leaves you now with probably about 15% of people. And then if you do a third one, 60, 70%, 15% of people would be pregnant. Now you're less than 5% chance of this happening. And when you look at this, you realize then something is wrong. This is not just chance anymore. We need to start looking elsewhere. Now, in reality, are we going to make someone undergo three negative pregnancy tests before we start doing a workup? No, but sometimes we do it too soon. I see patients all the time after one failure will end up doing tons of testing that's probably not necessary. Personally, what I tell people is this. If you only have a couple embryos or if it's very difficult to get embryos, so in other words, if you're 42 and you're lucky enough to get two or three embryos, then right out of the gate, you need to start checking all these minor things because you don't get a lot of chances. Whereas on the other hand, if you have multiple embryos and you have multiple chances, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, okay, that transfer didn't work. Let's try again one more time. So I think each situation is a little bit different. There's not a blanket answer for everyone. Is there any harm to starting the workup for repeated implantation failure too soon? No, not really, just cost and your time. So it's never gonna hurt someone to do the workup. It just may take more time. There are essentially two categories when it comes to repeated implantation failure. The first is going to be genetic abnormalities. The second is gonna be uterine receptivity issues. So let's start with the first. What are we talking about genetic abnormalities? We're talking about the fact that chromosomes play a big part on whether embryos are going to implant, whether they're going to continue, whether you're going to have a miscarriage. Under 35, the implantation rate is approximately 50%. By age 41 to 42, each embryo only has a 16% chance of implantation. So what's the big difference there? Why is that such a large difference? Because of age. We know age affects chromosomes, especially aneuploidy, which means abnormal chromosomes. So does that mean everyone should undergo PGS testing, also now called PGTA? 
The answer is no. Not everyone needs to do it. Now, there's no question if you do it, it can help. And anyone who's have repetitive implantation failures, I would highly recommend doing PGS testing because now you at least know, are you putting back a normal embryo or not? If you think about it, if you didn't test the embryos, that's probably the number one reason why it hasn't worked. As a matter of fact, people who have had multiple repeated implantation failures have been found to have more aneuploidy embryos. Now, does it guarantee you're going to get pregnant? No. But what it does guarantee is that you remove that issue from the question. A lot of this stuff is trial and error. Nobody except God knows what's going on here. But the more information we have, the more information we can use to determine what's wrong. If I don't know if the embryos are normal or not, then everything I'm doing is always going to be overshadowed by if that embryo is abnormal. So what if you have normal embryos, you put them back, and you keep having failures? That's when we start looking at uterine receptivity problems. First, we start with anatomical causes. So we're looking at things that could cause problems. These are uterine septums. These are things like scarring in the uterus, polyps in the uterus. All of those can cause you not to get pregnant. That's why it's always important to undergo a sonohistogram prior to your transfer. I recommend six months before your transfer. Some clinics will recommend a year. Now, if you've had repetitive failures, absolutely within six months. It may even be worth doing what's called a hysteroscopy where someone can look in the uterus with their eyes and be absolutely sure nothing is wrong. Another area to focus on is could there be some type of hydrosalpings that's putting fluid into the uterus? Now, what's hydrosalpings? Well, that is a fluid-filled fallopian tube that has toxic fluid inside it and can actually go back into the uterus and prevent you from getting pregnant. In fact, we know that if you have a hydrosalpings, you have a 50% reduction in the success of IVF and two times the risk of having a miscarriage. How do you test for this? Usually you can see it on an ultrasound, but one of the gold standard ways is to do a hysterosalpingogram, sometimes named HSG, and see if there's a hydrosalpings. When we're looking at PGS, we're looking at the embryo for abnormalities. But there can also be genetic problems with the couples who are trying to have a kid. So if you're having repetitive failures, it's not unreasonable to look at a karyotype if you haven't done PGS testing. That way you can find out if there are translocations, inversions, and problems in the chromosomes of the parents that could be causing the problem. Now, just to explain what a translocation is, a translocation is when your chromosomes are in the wrong place, but they're all there. I liken it to a book. If you're reading a book and someone takes chapter 12 out of that book and puts it between chapter two and three, when you're reading the book, you're going to say to yourself, this makes absolutely no sense. What is going on here? Because after chapter two, you have no idea what's going on. And then you get back to chapter three and you're thinking, wait, we're back to 
where we were before. But when you get to chapter 10 and you finish it and you start chapter 12, you're going to be like, oh, I get it. Someone moved the pages. So you have the whole story. It just took a little bit to get there. We call that a balanced translocation. When you have all the chromosomes, it just happens to not be in perfect order. But when you go to have a baby, you cut your book in half and you give your half of the book to the baby and that your partner gives their half the book to the baby. And now you gave the back half of your book to the baby. And so it has a complete first half. But when it gets to your second half, it's not going to have a chapter 11, right? Because that's in the front of your book. And you only gave the back half. We call that an unbalanced translocation. Just like if you give the front half of your book with your spouse's back half of their book, you're going to have now two chapter 11s, the one that you have between two and three and the one that they have. Again, an unbalanced translocation, which leads to miscarriages and sometimes repetitive implantation failures. So that's where a karyotype comes into play. A few other areas that people have looked at is people have looked at thrombophilia areas, looking at things like antiphospholipid syndrome. It's not unreasonable to look there, although there has been a lot of people have shown it is very unlikely that that is a cause of recurrent implantation failures. Another area that has looked at is sperm issues, DNA fragmentation specifically. This too has not been proven to cause implantation failures, although people do look at it, it has not really been shown to cause that. Additionally, immunologic factors. This is a really big one. It is used a lot and associated mainly with recurrent abortions. However, there have been questions about if partners' similarity in their human leukocyte antigens, HLA components, are too similar, it could potentially cause issues with implantation failure. This is fairly controversial, and at this time, there is no proven evidence that this is a cause. However, I feel like it's not unreasonable to look down this route if you've tried all the other things I'm going to recommend. The last thing I'm going to talk about is the endometrium. And I would say this is the second most important thing after looking at PGS testing, making sure the embryos are normal. In the past, we used to put all the focus on the size of the lining. Matter of fact, there are multiple studies out there that talk about if the lining's at least eight millimeters, the chances of implantation are higher than when there's lower. And although that is true, the question is, why is that true? Over the years, people have done many, many studies looking at implantation, looking at the endometrium. Our views of what we call the implantation window, which is the time of where the embryo implants, has changed so much over the last decade. I think the important part to understand is size doesn't matter. And that's not a pun. In this situation, yes, we don't want a line that's three millimeters. Yes, we're trying to get to an eight millimeter lining. But more important than the lining, size is the appearance of it. A trilaminar look, a kind of bulbous-like look to it where it gets bigger at the end. I have found as long as those things are there, no matter how thin the lining is, 
it seems to work. But even then, sometimes it wouldn't. And we would try lots of things. People would try doing a natural FET where we would use the patient's own ovulation and put the embryo back. And sometimes we would get a positive HCG, but again, very low lying. And then eventually came out the ERA, endometrial receptivity assessment. I honestly feel this was a game changer. I don't believe everyone should do it. I think it should be used in certain situations, but this changed everything. Prior to the ERA, I could honestly say when I had someone with implantation failure multiple times, I was scared. And what I was scared about is I didn't know if I was ever going to get this patient pregnant. And for me, I felt like I was letting them down. After the ERA, I have never felt that way anymore. I feel extremely confident that if the person does not get pregnant at my clinic with our embryos, after putting back a genetically normal embryo, that if I do an ERA, they will get pregnant. Now, again, that doesn't mean they're going to carry the baby. There are other things that can go wrong, miscarriages, things that we can't control. But specifically, we're talking about recurrent implantation failures. So what are the treatment options? Well, you can't change your embryos to make them normal. But you can do PGS, also called PGTA, and find the normal embryos. We also talked about you can test the partners and find out they have abnormal karyotypes. When it comes to the anatomical treatment, if there's a septum, you can do surgery. The same thing if there's a polyp or there's scar tissue. If you have a hydrosalpinx, you can remove it. When it comes to the embryo, it is normal to perform assisted hatching after multiple failures. The question on its effectiveness is up for debate, but it's not unreasonable to do. The thought here is that the embryo is not able to hatch out of the zona pellucida. And so by opening the zona pellucida, you're allowing the embryo to hatch out easier to be able to implant. In the past, when it came to the endometrium, I used to worry a lot about the size. And I would do multiple things to increase the size of the endometrium. I would try oral pills. I would try patches, injectable estrogen, Viagra. I even considered using a thing called GCSF to help improve the thickening of the lining. However, I stopped doing that. And the reason I stopped doing that is because I don't believe the thin lining is the issue. Now, again, this is my professional opinion. I do not have any hard data to back this up yet, but we are, we are pulling this data now. But one thing I've noticed is almost every time a patient of mine struggles to build a lining, their ERA is off. I used to never let patients undergo a transfer if their lining wasn't thick enough. But now if they have an ERA, I'm okay with it because I know it's not the lining that's the issue. 
it's the timing that was the issue. So now that I have the ERA to tell me when the timing is correct, I don't worry about the lining being thin. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, embryos can implant in the fallopian tube as an ectopic. Well, that's one cell layer thick. It can plant on the ovary. It can implant on the bowel. So those don't have endometriums. How does the embryo implant there? The point is, it's able to implant there because that's what the embryo does. The trophoblastic cells invade the tissue that they touch to be able to implant. Okay, so that was a lot of information. But what does this mean for you? The way I would look at it is this. If you have had implantation failure, the first question I would ask is, did I do PGS? That's a very important question because if you didn't, that could most likely be the reason. The second question you have to ask is, is it a good embryo? This is very important because not every clinic freezes good embryos. And this is important because you can have a normal embryo, but if it is poor quality and shouldn't have been frozen, you still may not get pregnant. It's important to understand that when you're talking about repetitive implantation failure, you have to have both normal embryos as well as good quality embryos. And normal embryos that are bad quality do lead to implantation failure. I have seen many patients who have come to me from other clinics with repetitive failure and they have lost all hope. And I tell them right when I see them that I know for a fact that that clinic freezes poor quality embryos and that many of them don't even survive the thaw and that it's not surprising that they didn't get pregnant. And that's important because they're blaming themselves. They think they are causing themselves not to get pregnant. But in reality, the embryos are just poor quality. But in their mind, they're thinking it's a normal embryo. So it must be something wrong with me. But it's not. It's a low quality embryo. So first, make sure you have normal embryos. If you're having implantation failures and you don't, do IVF and get normal embryos. Again, those normal embryos are only going to tell you which ones are normal. So now you can make the other adjustments. If that fails, then the question is, evaluate the uterus which should have been done beforehand, but evaluate it again. Maybe you're missing something. Maybe you should do an HSG. And then the last thing is the ERA. I don't think people should do it right out of the gate unless they only have one embryo or one shot at thing. So again, if you're older and it's very hard to get embryos, yeah, if you get a normal embryo, do an ERA. You get one shot at that. Make it your best. The same thing, if you only have one embryo that you want to use, such as if you're going for gender selection, you have a male embryo. Again, do the ERA. You get one shot at this. Do I think people should do it all the time? No, I actually don't think people should use the ERA. And I think probably about maybe 5% of our patients do an ERA. But I def definitely think it's worthwhile in the right situation. So I want to end with a story about a couple patients. I mentioned to you that I used to be afraid that I couldn't get patients pregnant when they had repetitive failures and I didn't know what to do. We tried everything. And these two couples come to mind. One of them was the first patient we ever had 
who had done three transfers with us with normal embryos and didn't get pregnant. It didn't make sense. No one before then has ever gone more than two transfers and didn't get pregnant. And now this person had a third. And the first two times it was completely zero. But on the third time, we did a more natural cycle FET and we at least got a positive HCG. But I met with her and I said, I don't know what to do next. We've tried everything. I said, maybe it might be worth going to another clinic. Maybe they might have an idea that I'm not thinking of. The second patient was a young couple. And the same thing, she could not get this lining to build up on her. And we kept getting zero. And we did another transfer and zero. And again, this is another patient. We're on the third transfer now. But this time, we do a natural FET, trying to do something different. And we get a slight positive. Now, she always struggled to build a lining. I don't think we ever got our lining above five. So then one day, I hear about this ERA. And I start thinking to myself, Maybe this is what's wrong. Maybe this is the issue. And what made me really think that was the issue was whenever we changed to a natural FET, they all got a little bit pregnant from zero to a little bit. And I thought, if you really think about the timing, by doing the natural cycle, my patients are getting approximately 12 hours more progesterone. And we we started talking about saying, you know, whenever... Our transfers don't work. And then we switch over to the natural cycle. They get pregnant. And that's when I realized they were on to something. This ERA will help us figure this out. Now, this wasn't completely new knowledge. People knew when when FETs failed, giving more progesterone for a longer period of time may help. But no one knew which way to go. And this is when the ERA sold me. So I spoke to that patient. I was so excited. I called her up. The first one who didn't have the problem with the lining, but who was negative. And I said, listen, there's this new test out. I think this is the problem. Unfortunately, it had no embryos. So we had to go back through IVF. But this time we did the ERA. And as expected, she was off. She needed more progesterone. And we did a transfer with one embryo, pregnant right away. Then I went and I said, okay, this has to be it. So I tell the other couple, I said, listen, I had this other patient. This is what happened. I think you should do this ERA. Her ERA came back showing she needed less progesterone, which is crazy to think that an embryo naturally falls on day five into the uterus. And she only needed four days of progesterone. It was actually even a little less than four days for timing. And even I started questions going, What? How can you only do three and a half days of progesterone and get pregnant? But we did it. We put back the embryos and pregnant on the first try. This isn't just a story once in a while. This is a common theme we see in our practice. Now, this is our statistics. I can't say this for every place. Again, we know the quality of our embryos. We know the chances with our embryos. But at my clinic, if you don't get pregnant... With either two embryos that are PGS tested, almost always there's something wrong with the timing. And when we fix it, almost always people get pregnant. My hope 
is that someone who hears this tonight who has had multiple failed IVFs will realize there are newer technologies now that can help them and that they will seek this help. If anyone has specific questions about their case, please feel free to send me an email to tbft at newdirectionfertility.com. That's tbft like talk about fertility Tuesday at newdirectionfertility.com. I'll be more than happy to look at your case and answer that for you. Thank you again for everybody's support. We are getting more and more listeners by the week and more and more people are learning about their fertility. I'm hoping that everyone's learning a lot. I'm hoping that it is getting them to talk to their doctors and to be more involved in their care. I appreciate everything you have done, all the reviews you have done to help us get to where we're at. Next week, I'll be starting podcast on pregenetic screening, also called PGTA. Specifically, I'm going to talk about what it is, the benefits of it, but I'm also going to go into the controversies right now. I know a lot of people are really worried about PGS and what if they're throwing away normal embryos. We're going to go over that into the data and I'll make sure you're not worried about it anymore. Until next week, thanks again for listening to Taco Bell Fertility Tuesdays.